Here we go, rejecting the screen, the going ISO edition, as we do every week with all sorts of folks who have touched the NBA. Noah Kozlov out here in the East Coast. He has gone from the West Coast to the East Coast. Is Adam Stengel. Yes, sir. Let you know who today's guest is in just one moment. Today's episode brought to you by rockauto.com. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. Our guest today was a Big East Rookie of the Year, a Big East Tournament MVP, a Big Ten Player of the Year, a two-time All-American, was drafted in the second round by the Atlanta Hawks, spent 11 years overseas, becoming one of the best point guards in Europe. He's Grizzlies assistant coach, Scooney Penn. Scooney, I want to start with senior year in high school. Mm -hmm. Your final regular season game, a 77-75 win against Peabody when you scored 53. What was yeah. being in the zone like that night? Um, I was in it. Uh, and reason being was um, our other really good player, Jamal Kamal, who uh, ended up going to Providence, Jamal was suspended for the game. And um, so that put a little more on my shoulders. Although I think I was averaging close to 30 that year, um, there was no way we were going to lose that last game. I think we struggled off and on. but the plan was to go undefeated. We wanted to be the best team in the state, win the championship, win the state championship, and and losing the Peabody, you know, my career, that would have hurt the last regular season game. So uh, there was nothing that was going to stop me from win- losing that game. So that's where that uh, that 50-point game came. Come, it just came from, listen, I don't want to lose this game. Didn't want to be denied. So that team, your name, State Player of the Year, Massachusetts, your team goes 25-0. Salem High School State Champs, first undefeated team in 69 years. You're right, you did average 30 along with five, seven, and four steals. But scoring 53, what was what was it like that night after the game, the type of attention and stardom that you had uh-huh. built? Um, I don't know. At that point, it was basically not saying it was routine, but it was, uh, was kind of normal for me to have some big games. 53 was a little different. Um, I didn't really know how many points I had. I did. I, I really didn't. I hadn't. I didn't have an idea till it was all said and done, and the reporter had mentioned it to me. Because, um, like I said, I was in a zone. It was just about getting this W. I didn't care how I had to do it, um, but I just wanted to make sure we had that win. But you know, I've had nights where you know you get in a zone and and and, and you feel like everything you shoot's gonna go in. You're just on fire. I've had games like that, and then what happens is you get pulled because you're winning big. I was just happy that this game, actually, we were in the game. The game was tight. So it's not like I scored 53 in a blowout. It was 53 in a tight game. Mm-hmm. So that's what, that's what makes it mean even more when you're doing it in a meaningful game. Um, you know that the shots that you take and that you make are big shots, not in garbage time. So I think that's what meant the most about it was that, you know, I'm doing it when it counts. Big shots, big player, big time guy at the at the high school level. Before you were doing it at Salem, it was Rick Brunson doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, he paved the he paved the way there. Um, <laughs> some people listening might not even recall Rick Brunson, which is unbelievable. But they but they certainly know his son Jalen Brunson, star of Villanova, and now mm-hmm. uh, big time player in the NBA. But as you were coming up, and and Rick Brunson was blazing the trail ahead of you. What was your yeah. relationship? like at at the time no great relationship like we still have a good relationship rick was like big brother to me rick brunson was part of the reason why you know i wanted to hoop you know 
his stepdad, uh, Mark Cass, was a director of the Boys Club. So that's how I've always been very close. Uh, Rick's sister and I was extremely close. Um, we actually, I went to her prom with her. Uh, so I've always come up close <laughs> to that family. And um, so Rick and I, you know, always extremely close. But I, he definitely paved the way. Um, it's kind of funny because if you look at all his records, he the amount of points he scored, the wins he got, everything at Salem High School, I beat everything, and that was my goal. I said when I set out to play, he played varsity as a freshman. I said, I got to play varsity as a freshman. He started, I started. He scored 2,000-something points. I had to top that. He won a state championship. I had to win a state championship. He lost, I think he lost eight or nine games in four years. I lost seven. So, you know, he was a big part of my motivation. But then our, our relationship even grew even more as we got older. Um, off season, I used to work out with him. When he was in the league, I would go to Philly um, to work with him. Even when I got out of out of college, we worked out in off season. So, you know, Rick has always been a big brother to me, um, someone I looked up to. And um, he pushed me basketball-wise. He pushed me more than he would ever know. But, um, yeah, without Rick Brunson being who he was, how he was, I don't know if there'd be a Scooney pen, to be honest with you. I probably would have well, stuck with football if that's the case. I would have probably played football wow. more. Well, that's it's it's interesting. I'm 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 curious. I hear a lot of guys who who reach such a high level of of basketball and excelling internationally in the NBA, D1, they talk about sometimes the idea that they 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 wouldn't have been able to reach it without seeing it or being able to touch mm-hmm. it first. Can you put that into into your words what it means to to watch somebody from your area, from your town, from your high school go on to have the kind of success that he did? Yeah, that, that, that's remarkable um, because here's the thing. You know, my favorite player of all time is Isaiah Thomas. That's why through high school and when I was at BC, I wore 11. Um, but that's on TV. You don't get to actually see, you don't get to touch that person. I had that conversation a lot of times. You, know, you look at the greats, that they're there. You watch them on television. But to actually have somebody where you can have a conversation to them, you see them, you can touch them, you can watch them, that holds so much more weight. Um, and that's part of the reason why, you know, as a person, I've always felt like it's important to be around. It's important to give back. It's important to put yourself in front of people that want to aspire to do things like you because it's tangible. You know, it, it gives people more hope. And that's what Rick was to me. And I know a lot of guys have their guy that was their Rick Brunson for them because we can actually see them and you can touch them. And you know, it's real and it gives you more hope. So seeing a guy from your area, someone you're close to, um, close enough to touch, you watch them be successful, that means so much more than watching a guy on television. It, it meant so much more for me to see Rick Brunson be Rick Brunson than it was to watch Michael Jordan or Isaiah Thomas or Larry Bird, people like that. So that stuff is, is undeniably, like, very valuable in life. Um, so I think, you know, it's important for athletes to understand that, that you do carry a burden, that when you're good or you're successful, that you do have people looking at you, looking up to you and want to be like you or use you as inspiration. What was the first time you met Isaiah? Uh, I didn't, I've never really even got a chance to meet Isaiah. It was so huh. crazy because they did our game this year. It, it's wild. I've never crossed paths with Isaiah Thomas. And he's still my favorite player, always will be. Um, he, was, he did our game when we was in L.A. And he was on the floor talking, but I was working with one of the guys. And I wanted to go over and speak to him, but by the time I was done, he had left out. And I was like, damn. But I'm, I'm going to get to see him, though, get to see him and talk to him and, uh, and, and tell him what he meant to me from afar. 
because it's always Isaiah Thomas, Kenny Anderson, obviously point guards. I know Kenny. Um, I got to tell Kenny how I felt about him watching him play in the Boston shootout when I was a kid when he come for the New York team. Uh, but, yeah, you know, I, I, there's, there's a number of guys I could talk about, but there's there's few that really just stand out. And, of course, Brunson is one of those guys. Scooney was as reliable as they came in college basketball. And then for those 11 years in Europe, and he's as reliable as they come on a bench as an assistant coach, just like rockauto.com with their reliably low prices. It's a family business, been serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. We've been telling you about it for so long now. If you go to rockauto.com, they've got everything. You don't need to be intimidated because the catalog is so easy to use and to navigate. You can see everything that you're vehicle will need. You can choose brands, specifications, the prices, and those prices, as I said, always reliably low. The same for professionals and do-it-yourselfers. So why spend up to twice as much for the same parts? Doesn't make any sense. Go to rockauto.com right now. You can see all the parts available for your car or truck. Now help us out. Right, locked on, L-O-C-K-E-D space on. Locked on in their how did you hear about us box so that they know we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. RockAuto.com. What was AAU ball like when you were playing in Massachusetts? The best. Like that, you know, I'm sure people are familiar still with BABC. um, But the years that I played with BABC, we had probably the best AAU team in the country. We won every tournament. We played against the top competition. Like then it was different because now there's, thousands of AAU teams. You know, there were a lot of AAU teams back in the day, but it was, you had the teams that traveled nationally, regionally, you know, but the national teams were the best teams in your state. The best guys in your state most of the time played for one or two teams, and they would be the teams that travel. Nowadays, there's a million of them. So BABC at the time obviously still is king of Massachusetts, and we played everyone and anyone and anywhere um, and we were really good. We won the Nationals in Vegas. We won in Florida. You know, obviously had a, you know, backcourt made in Chris Heron. Uh, Wayne Turner played with us. Uh, Randell Jackson. I can go on. We had a younger guys than Mike Bradley and Monty Mack and Shannon Crooks. We had all D1 guys, and it was a remarkable, and it was some of the best years of my life was playing with those guys. You guys were obviously pretty loaded as you as you talk about. I mean, it's incredible what was coming out of uh, the – the Boston and Boston suburbs area during during that run. Mm-hmm. So Leo Papil was the, was the coach at that time. Who were who were some of the guys that you were were playing against in some of these national tournaments? Oh, we, it was the best. You think about it. We from Felipe Lopez to Stephon Marbury to Kevin Garnett, Kobe Bryant, Allen Iverson, Sharif Abdul Rahim, Paul Pierce, Ron Mercer. Uh, uh, who else? Everyone. You name it. All the guys that were. You think about it, big-time players now, it's crazy because the last of my class, the last of that era, um, was Vince Carter, who's finished now. Mm-hmm. Vince Carter we played against. Vince Carter, one of the most memorable games I remember at AAU, we lost one of the national tournaments in Florida, down in Florida State, my last year. And we lost to the Jersey team that put Tim Thomas, Kobe Bryant, and Vince Carter, who were all on the same team, and we lost in overtime. And Kobe Bryant did an unbelievable dunk on Randell Jackson because Randell had dunked on Vince Carter a couple plays before. And uh, 
that was like, I'll never forget it because that for me was Monty Mack coming out game. Because in that tournament, I think Monty probably had like 30 plus. Him and Kobe were going back and forth at it. Uh, but yeah, that's just to name a few guys. But you know, even my younger years, when it was, you know, whatever, you know, Ray Allen played, I think just going online with all the guys that we faced. So by the time you got to college and you played against these guys, we already had done it for years. Hey, you, I didn't play against all the guys that I was going to go, that I was going to play against in college. Majority of them, especially with they were two or three years within my class. I already played them because I was on Leo's team as a sophomore. So uh, it gave me great experience, great confidence. And, and I was ready for anything after playing those games. Was KG talking crazy those days? Oh, yeah. KG was always crazy. KG's awesome. He's one of the best. Um, but he was always like that, even, you know, playing against him through high school. Um, very loud, talk a lot in the court, talk a whole lot of trash. Um, but you knew he was going to be great. You know, I remember seeing him. I think he was probably sophomores or juniors. Yeah, we were in the same class. You knew that, that he was going to be um, exceptional. And obviously, he's going to be an NBA Hall of Famer. So, I mean, he proved everyone right. So there's a new book out about the Shaq, Kobe, Lakers, Shaq, Kobe, Phil, Lakers. Jeff Perlman wrote the book. He's a New York Times bestselling author. He's written some some of the best sports books out there. And we had him on, and, and I've read the book. And he, he talks all about Kobe's early years, like Kobe up until 2004. And he said mm-hmm. something interesting. He said that it always seemed like Kobe was auditioning different personas that he mm-hmm. wasn't he, he wasn't Iverson he wasn't from Newport News he wasn't Steph but he wanted everybody to think that he was what what was your impression of Kobe the the personality at that point mm-hmm. so it's interesting that you said because I remember Kobe as high school um you think about we played all over AAU and I remember playing against Kobe's teams and Kobe being in tournaments and him just sitting in the gym all the time. Kobe was one of them kids that he was gra- he gravitated towards others because he's a kid who grew up in Europe. He didn't like he wasn't, and his dad was always around. I, I would say this: he 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 wasn't exposed to things that we were exposed to. You know, like here's a bunch of kids we went on AU trip with with our coach, and that was it. And after the games, we all hung out and. We did dumb stuff teenagers did. He didn't, he wasn't that guy that was able to do that because a lot of times he had his family was there with him. Um, so I, I think that is pretty accurate. I feel that Kobe was a guy who, who wanted to be in so many ways. He didn't care if you liked him or not on the court. He was who he was going to be. But off the court, I think that sometimes he wanted to transform into everyone else or something else so people would understand him or like him a little bit different you know what i'm saying because again think mm-hmm. about the time alan iverson was a popular guy his style steph you know you can name those guys kobe wasn't the guy that you look at for swag and wasn't like that he was because he came up different like he, he didn't have the typical basketball story like a lot of us come from you know his was a different journey and and it's stupid that his journey doesn't seem cool like alan iverson after you get in trouble your great comeback, that seems something cool. But you have a lot of people that can relate to that, and that got publicized. Mm-hmm. So I can see Kobe trying to, you know, get a little of that of that publicity. But, you know, Kobe's unbelievable, man. There's nothing to say. Like, that, that hurts. That'll always hurt. Um, 
And I, that, I don't know what I'm lost for words for that. Still thinking about him not being here anymore. Want to get into your college career, but you just brought something up about journeys that are considered cool. I, I was watching your Ohio State Hall of Fame speech, and two mm-hmm. people that you talked about, it looked like you, you got pretty emotional discussing. Your mom and Lucy mm-hmm. Cormier. Yeah. Um, what, what role did each of them play in your upbringing, especially, you know, here's this kid who has all this talent uh, and this crazy mm-hmm. work ethic, but, but the role that they played in, in helping you become who you are now? Yeah, it was second to none. Um, you know, first and foremost, my hero, physical mother. You know, that'll never change. That'll always be the case. You know, she was just, she was that for me. And reason being, I always state, it was not because, you know, just because she's my mom. It was just because her work ethic and what she did for our family. That's better and bigger than anything I could ever see any NBA or any athlete or entertainer do. So for me, she's been my hero. And then there was Lucy, who someone who was an unbelievable mentor. She came from a different place than I did. Um, but she taught me a lot and just how she how she helped me, um, helped me. She gave me a place outlet because sometimes, you know, you know, at home it was hard to study. It was hard to do some things I needed to do um, at home. But at her place, I had a safe haven of going there, having some quiet and, and, and doing some schoolwork and did things like that because her and my her daughter and I were in the same grade. Um, so that was just something that that I could never repay her, you know, for what she'd done for me and helped me um, as a as a young man to grow to be a man. Um, you need people like that. I've had a lot of really good mentors, but she was just something special um, to help me get to where I need to go. So then when you end up going to the Final Four, and we're going to go backwards in a moment, but staying with your mom, when you end up going to the Final Four, after after winning the regional, you end up in the crowd mm-hmm. hugging your mom yeah. saying, we did it, we did it. Yeah. It, tru- it truly was a we. It's a we. And I feel like, like it's always going to be a we. Um, I always felt like every accomplishment, everything I'd done, I, I never went alone. You know, and to this day, I don't go alone, whatever I do, because my we changes to my to my kids. You know what I'm saying? Um, but she's still there, you know, mom, you know, it's one thing because his, 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 you know, you know, that your mom, your family, they know your dreams. You know, my mom watched me, um, she watched me come home mad about games. You know, she looked for me on the streets and had to find me at certain courts. Um, you know, she watched my journey. And sometimes from afar because she had to work a lot. So sometimes she never caught, she hadn't, she didn't get a chance to watch me play some games. Um, so she'd have to hear about them or whatever the case may be. But she's always been there. So she knows how bad her son wanted it. So for me to reach certain plateaus and receive certain awards, you know, it wasn't for her sacrifice and I would have never been able to do the things I've done. So I always looked at it as we, you know, and, and that's what I've done it for. I've always done things for my mom. I've done it for my family um, because for me, that's the most important. And for me, it, it's God and family and, and everything else is, is way back. So um, that, that still remains and that will never change. All right. So then, of course, your mom certainly had to be part of your, your college decision. At that mm-hmm. time, when you're being, you're being recruited, you're the state player of the year in Massachusetts. Was, was Cal Perry recruiting you at UMass? Oh yeah, big time. He makes fun of me all the time. 
I seen Cal at an AAU tournament. My son was in AAU. We was in uh, which one was that? Maybe Boo Williams. And I see Cal. I'm, I'm sitting with Paul Bancardi, who coached me at BC. Um, so I see Cal. So I go see Cal. I was like, Hey, what's up? And he and he loves to say this. He was like, he brings up, yeah, yeah, we kicked your ass when you was at BC, UMass. They should have came to UMass. And we always have a good laugh about it. Um, but, yeah, he recruited us math kids pretty hard, myself um, and Wayne Turner. Um, and neither of us went. But um, no, I absolutely love Cal. But, um, yeah, it was tough. But BC, I just felt more comfortable there. You know, O'Brien and that staff was it, was it for me. It was close to home. Uh, family could come watch me play, be around. So, you know, I thought it was a great decision. So you didn't like what was inside the bag from Cal, or you didn't like the bag itself when he dropped when he dropped it off? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Um, is there is there a, a statute limitation? How long you could you know put stuff sure. back up? No, it's, oh, it's, sure. it's long gone. <laughs> no, but Cal, listen, let me say this much: when it comes to recruiting, man, Cal is second to none. Mm-hmm. He's second to none, and and. and I would have loved to be a player for him because I always love his style and his tenacity and how he is. But uh, O'Brien wasn't no slouch either. No question about that. When you so you're you're Boston College, you guys have success. Uh, your first couple seasons. I mean, you're in the NCAA tournament. You're, you're beating Bryce Drew. You're playing against Steph Marbury. But mm-hmm. but you're the man at BC, bringing bringing the team to to the NCAA tournament and all. Jim O'Brien goes to Ohio State. What were those conversations like just from the very beginning when he first told you that, that he was leaving and then eventually, obviously, you go join him? Yeah, it was tough. And I, it was like, let me tell you how tough this was. So we, uh, we basically were, I remember being at my place and I remember looking at television and you seen O'Brien walking around St. John's Arena, who was on the news. And I'm just like, what the hell is going on? A lot of this stuff was going on, which, you know, we didn't know about. Um, then we got a call. We had a team meeting, and we talked about it. He said he was leaving. And then after that, he called me to the office and says, listen, I want you to know that, you know, I would want you to come. And, you know, I kind of blew it off. And it, when I tell people this, people, like, didn't understand that, I had no – I didn't want to go. There was no part of me that was going to Ohio State. I was like, hell no, I wasn't even thinking about it. My thought at the time was, okay, let me see. Do I have time to go into the draft? I just came off of making a tournament, you know, Big East MVP of the tournament. I, you know, I was kind of hot. Or do I transfer? You know, and so I was in limbo. And I was in limbo for a very long time. I didn't decide till the very end to transfer and go to Ohio State. When I went there, I had a great visit. And on the plane back to Boston, I felt like, yo, this is going to be it for me. I'm going to go to Ohio State. But it had nothing to do with the coaching staff. It did not really. I loved the way I was at at Ohio State when I went to visit. It felt good. Um, and part of the reason that I was going to leave BC is because they were dragging their feet with hiring a coach. They hired Al Skinner, mm. which I have a lot of respect for. I didn't mind. But, again, I thought in my position where I was at the time that they would at least kind of talk to me about some of the situation that was going on. BC did none of that. And, and part of me thought that I thought Mike Jarvis was going to get the job. And I know Mike Jarvis being a Boston guy and all that, realistically, things would have changed. If Mike Jarvis would have got the BC job, I would have never left. I probably I would have stayed in Boston for sure. 
he ended up going to St. John's and I ended up beating him anyways. But I, I, I thought that was part of the rumor <laughs> I heard about my, maybe Mike Jarvis. And if Jarvis had got the job, I probably would have stayed at BC. So that was a, a rumor that Jarvis was part of that process, but no one in the administration said to you, Mike Jarvis could be the guy here? No, I, the administration never said anything about any coach or anything at all to me. They didn't ask me anything. They didn't ask me how I felt about anything. I thought really BC handled it really bad with me um, wanting to transfer. Um, I, I thought it was handled very unprofessionally. I remember I had to set up, I set up a meeting with the athletic director. Um, you know, because you have to get, you have, they have to sign you off to go be, visit schools. And BC was doing me very dirty. Like they were skipping on meetings on me. Um, I remember I had to get an attorney to send them a letter so that I could, because I can move on with the process. Um, so it left a bitter taste in my mouth about the way they handled it. I thought if we had talked, they sat down, they talked to me a little bit, we could talk about some things that would have ended up different. But it was kind of thinking like, well, you know, Brian said he's leaving, and they just kind of forgot about the basketball program. No one said anything to us. They kind of left it out there. And I was left to make a decision. So to me, it seemed like they didn't care. So if they didn't care, well, I'm going to get out of here. And that was it. But my heart was at BC. Why not? We were good. We was rolling. We had that place rocking. Mm-hmm. We had guys from Boston coming there. You know, we had commitments from younger guys coming in. Elton Tyler was committed to come. Mike Bradley was committed to come. These are guys that played my AU team when they were younger, but they were local guys. Yep. You know, I mean, it's so good, like, because we talked about it, like, we wanted to make BC more of a, a mass thing. Why not? We got an unbelievable university here. Well, let's make it home. But the athletic department didn't see it that way. So, um, you know, that's why I think you see such a roller coaster at the university. But, you know, hopefully you get back on track someday. For for other guys going through it, it's, it's always interesting. They talk about that. They can sometimes have an issue with the school, but then – but then it's different with their teammates or what have you. So you got you got recruits there looking to come to BC, like you mentioned, but also the guys that you had just been rolling with yourself at at BC, and then and then I'm sure there were local fans that you were friends with and in the community and everything. Being a local kid who is now a star at Boston College, mm-hmm. what kind of pressure were you feeling from from that group to stick around? Oh yeah, I felt a lot of pressure. I did. I, I was getting it from every angle. Um, it was tough, even teammates, because it was hard for me to leave my guys. There's Mickey Curley, who I played AAU with. You know, I had Dwayne Woodward, you know, Antonio Granger. You know, these guys became my brothers. We was tight. The other guys that were in my class, they were transferring already once Coach said he was leaving. Um, but obviously in the community, I was involved in the community. You know, I'd been around there, uh, you know, the state, all that stuff. So it was tough. I, I, I felt backlash because, check this out. Here's a funny story. Um, so I decided to transfer. And there's summer league is going on in the city. And so when I decide I'm transferring, I make a decision, whatever, whatever, I play in the summer league game. And I'll never forget it. I go to the basket. And Mickey Curley, who I played years with, Mickey Curley fouls the hell out of me and walks away. And I remember getting up and saying, okay, Mickey, I see how it is. And that was it. And it was like a, it was a really hard foul. He knocked me in my ass really bad. It was kind of dirty. Um, I wonder if he'd remember that because he and I, we talked about it not too long ago. We didn't talk about it, but he sent me a message. He forwarded me something on Twitter that someone sent to him 
a while ago, but we never had a conversation about that. I don't know if we ever really talked since that day. Um, it's been all these years, but, you know, I know guys felt some kind of way that I left because we had a good thing coming, good thing rolling. Uh, but again, had to make a decision for myself. So, you know, end up leaving. Uh, last thing on the BC time. And look, I went to BU. I could have told you that BC was the wrong choice from the beginning, but you were at BC <laughs> before, before I was at, before I was at BU. But what was, what was the most classic big East atmosphere that you played in during those two years? Man, it was, uh, I would say, um, Oh, Syracuse. I'll have to go with Syracuse. That place, that dome. Think about it. I played in the years that they went to the, shit, the final four my freshman year. They had really good teams. But playing in front of all those fans in that dome, that was unbelievable. Syracuse was, was a place. But a, a lot of good arenas. Because although Georgetown with Iverson, we played them, um, you know, in the Bullets place at the time. Well, now it's the Wizards. Uh UConn, we played them in downtown in Hartford. Providence, that's another really good place. But at the time, the Big East was the best conference. There was, what, seven, eight teams in the top 25. Every road game was extremely tough. But the one place you go to that stands out, you go to Syracuse. You go to that dome, and that's just something different. Uh, and, I, and I enjoyed that. So for me, that's the one place in the Big East that I always stand out, is playing in that dome against Syracuse. So you go to Ohio State and your transfer year. So the team, the team had gone eight and twenty-two. Ooh. Your tra- your your transfer year, you walk. You're can't play. You're practicing. You mm-hmm. and the walk-ons are beating Michael Red oh, yeah. and the and the rest of the starters. So take us take <laughs> us through what it was like on the court as you and the walk-ons are beating the starters. So. What they didn't understand at the time was that I was built different. And I wanted to make sure that everyone realized that. The first day I got on campus, I played at the, the parks on campus, and I was getting to arguments and to like little tussles with just local dudes. But it was, I'm here to show everybody here that I'm taking this whole thing open. No, really. And I would go into different gyms in the city and just playing all the time. And that's how I got to know everyone, the people in the city. So my agenda was different. I remember talking to O'Brien and Ben Cardi, we talked a lot about it, was that my everyday practice is my game. I had to sit a whole year, but this was my game. And and that's how I approached practice every day. So when it came down to scrimmaging and we played games or competition, I wanted to win every single time. And what was cool was that the guys that didn't play much or the walk-ons that were on my team, I was able to inspire those guys enough that they played hard as hell. And we outplayed the starters because it was, again, this is our game time. You guys are not playing much come game time, so this is your game time. So let's get the most out of it. And that's how I approached it every day that year I sat out. I think that helped me coming in the following year. I was ready because I played every day in practice. I came to practice early. I left late. I bust my ass in the weight room. You know, Mike Red and I would stay after and play one-on-one. You know, we'd work on certain moves. That's all. I moved to a different place. I didn't know many people. Um, all I did was play ball. And when they went on the road, I went to other gyms to play. I was going to, I went to other colleges in the area, open gyms. I was going to rec courts to play. Just walking the gyms. People might not didn't know who I was, but they knew who I was by the time I left that place. 
but that was just the mindset. So for us to win every day in practice and to beat those guys, that became normal because this was my game and I wasn't going to allow anybody to stop me. And that's just how it was. And, and the guys that had alongside of me, it was so cool because they their game risen. They was like, yo, this is this is fun. They they love to taste the winning. And, and O'Brien used to get pissed at it. But I think that helped us so much because beating those guys and the returners for the next year, you know, we were on the same page and we just took off. Well, you talk about that the and about you being built different. I know media day, you end up saying we're going to the final four. Yeah. <laughs> what, what what was the response when you said that and 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 what what really made you believe that that was possible well you know obviously playing two years in the big east um having some experience um i felt confident in in where i would be as a player but i watched the guys we had i seen how much talent mike red had you know i watched jason singleton who's an unbelievable athlete you know we had certain pieces that all just came together they did. And I, it was just me just wanting to go to Final Four. I've always wanted to go to Final Four. You watch on television, that's like the, the ultimate, try to win the national championship. And I felt very confident in my ability. And I caught a lot of backlash with that from O'Brien. He couldn't believe I said that. He's like, I can't believe you said that shit. And he's basically his words was to me, well, you got to go out and prove it now. And I just looked at him like, okay, I got you. And that was it. Um, but he never gagged me, though. He, he he always allowed me to, you know, speak my mind and how I felt. Um, but he didn't like that comment at all. He felt like I put too much pressure on our guys. Like, he always told me, it's okay if you feel confident in you in certain things, but the other guys might not think as you think. But my mindset was, well, I need them to start thinking like I'm thinking. What better better you? What What better way to put it out there and have something to reach for? And that's basically what it turned out to be. So, that, so that's something that you've built your career on of uplifting other guys and raising their level. So mm-hmm. take us into the, into the micro, into the details. What were the things that you were doing with these guys, Michael Red included, to make them believe that they could get there? By just a lot of words of encouragement. Um, but another thing, another way was I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you because uh, the atmosphere was very different when I got there. You know, it was guys didn't have the ethic of getting there early, staying late, coming on days off, like really putting that time in. I felt like the players there, they liked basketball, but they didn't love basketball. I thought the, the way the program was and the guys that were there, it wasn't life for them. It was just, okay, we got a scholarship, we had to play ball, and it's cool. For me, basketball was life. This is it for me. Um, and I think that showed just by my actions and how I brought it to work all the time. But one thing I learned, um, I think from being around good leaders, but also, uh, you know, also watching it, is that it's very powerful to encourage guys, to encourage guys, push guys, um, you can bring the best out of them. I was hard on the guys, and, and, and I always thank them. And I thank guys every year. We had our little end-of-the-season stuff. I always thank God for letting me lead, to allow me to be a leader, for allowing me to get on you and not taking it personal, understanding that it's only for the good. So it was big. It was, it was, it, one thing was it was creating those relationships with a guy like Ken Johnson, who ended up being a really good, good, good college basketball player. If you'd have seen him at the beginning, the kid 
never was in the gym, really didn't like playing ball, had very minimal confidence. And I worked with Kenny a lot. I used to get on him. I used to stay on him. But I also, I also pleaded with him and let him understand like how much we needed him to understand the value that he brings to our team and how much we need him and how much we care about him. And I think when you start doing that to guys and you letting them know that you really care, then they will play different. You react different. So that was just part of my scheme was just to build a relationship with every single guy in that locker room and help encourage them and make them believe. Because here's the one thing. I was a guy that won a state championship high school. I was an NCAA twice. I won a Big East title, won a Big East tournament. No one in that locker room or in that program had won a state championship in high school. Like, no one ever won. So it was like I'm dealing with guys who think they can play. They're not they're good players. But it's different between winners and guys who are just playing. And I'm always a guy who I saw every level. I won. I always had to win. And just bringing that to these guys, understanding the value of winning. And, you know, we were able to do that. And guys felt that success. And I think with that, our group is so tight that a bunch of us got together a couple of weeks ago when I was in Columbus. Um, and we talk about those things because those are precious times of our lives. Sounds like you take as much or more pride in that than anything you accomplished individually. So that's, that's pretty cool Definitely. to hear. I think it says a lot about yourself. Scooney, you, you, you mentioned that, you know, you knew Michael Red was talented, but obviously we saw a guy that was an NBA star years mm-hmm. down the road. When's the first time you saw the Michael Red that the rest of us saw when he blew up in the NBA? The first day I've seen a kid play, we was working out, playing open gym. I've seen it. Because the one thing I always said to kids, when a kid can shoot, when he gets his shot together, he's going to be really, really, really good. Because he had a knack of getting to the rim. Good length, plays hard. And he, had to, he had to catch up. Like, his mind had to catch up to the game. Because Mike would just go out there and play. He wasn't a thinker. He would just go play. It was always like he was in the playground just playing and just looking to score, score, score. And he did. He was the second leading scorer in the country for freshmen after Larry Hughes. He averaged 20 as a freshman in the Big Ten, which was tough as hell. So he played fabulous basketball, but he wasn't a thinker of it. I think it took Mike some time to understand the game and to learn the game and the, and the nuances. And once he learned that and improved on his shot, sky was the limit for the young man. But you just knew it because he was one of the guys when he came in, he didn't mind working. And that's how our bond grew fast because in practice, the year I set out, I didn't cover a lot of the guards. I covered him. Coach was like, yo, I guarded him. I knew the potential he had. I would push him. I would get in his ass. I would push him around a little bit, you know, because he had to get stronger. Um, yeah, it was, it was one of those things where it was a big brother, little brother thing. And you just knew, like, damn, in due time, this kid's going to take off. It happened. So, for me, I've seen it from the very beginning um, because I just knew what kind of kid he was and, and the work ethic and what he wants to give the game. So, he became very successful with it. When you mentioned nuances that, that he needed to pick up and the difference between just playing and learning the game, what, what are some of those things? What do they look like? Well, the, the thing, they look like, like when you start, when you really understand the game and when you slow down, you know how to pick your spots. You know when to attack. You know how to get your players involved um, because that's what the good players do. You know, the great players, it's not always full steam ahead. 
you know sometimes you got to let the game come to you. And, and, and what that means is it doesn't mean I have to come out and take the first five shots. Sometimes me, because I'm going to get the attention, it's making sure my other guys get their shots, that they're getting to a groove. Because one thing you realize, when you're the main guy or when you're one of the better players on the team, when it comes down to it, the ball's going to be in your hands. You just know it because everyone will give it to you. But what you also got to understand, when you're in that position of responsibility, you can't score 80 points by yourself. You need your other guys. I need them dialed in. Like, for instance, one of the nuances I understood for me early in the game, I knew Mike Red needed to get his shots. He likes to shoot a lot. I had to get Mike's touches early. But I also knew I needed to get the ball to Ken Johnson. I need Ken to get a couple of touches to feel good about himself. Why? Because if he does, on the defensive end, he's going to be a monster. And now we're going to be really good. When he plays D the way he can play D, now that we can pressure on the perimeter, we can get out and we can run. So it was strategically done that way. Where some games I didn't shoot the ball early. I barely touched the ball. I got up, I set, I set the team up, I did what I had to do, and let these guys do what they had to do. Because I know when we get to the last 10 minutes of the game, I know where the ball is going to be. But I had to let the game come to me. I had to get other guys involved. And one of the other special nuances, you have to understand how teams are playing. And Mike, at a young age, didn't understand that. It was always the same. But you have to understand there's going to be different game plans for you. And the sooner you can figure that out, the more successful you will be. You know, whether they're playing, I don't know, sometimes the boxing one, or maybe they're shading you one way, not the other. Watch you. They're going under on your screens. They're chasing you under. Are they trapping you? You know, you take the early part of the game to figure that out, and then you exploit it. Some guys just go full steam ahead, and that's just that's a bad way you end up making turnovers all game. So those are some of the nuances of the game that, that you learn, that you pick up, and that comes with experience. When you get some of that experience, you become more patient, and, and you realize those things. Yeah, you knew the ball was going to be in your hands at the end of the game. I was, I was going back and looking at some of those stories from 99, winning at Assembly Hall where Ohio State had won just twice ever getting 18 of 20 yep. in the second half. And then the previous game at Iowa, when you had 24 of your 27 in the second half to win. Let's mm-hmm. fast forward then. How would, you, how would you describe your draft workout process? Um, I thought it was good. It was tough as hell, uh, but it was good. I, I, when I look back at it, and I'm grateful for being drafted, I understand it's a young man's game. The younger you are, you know, the earlier you get drafted, things just kind of work out better. I didn't have a senior season like I had the junior season. I probably would have been – I definitely would have been first rounder if I come out my junior year, myself and Mike Red included. We wouldn't have went second round. Um, but the process was cool. It, it was. Uh, it was tough. You know, you had to be in really good shape, going to different organizations and going through their workouts and, you know, the mental and the physical part of it uh, were both equally tough. But um, I, I definitely enjoyed it. And um, it definitely opens your eyes to where you have to be as far as in shape and, and, and being ready to perform on the stage because you're sitting here working out, then you have coaches, you know, front office people, everyone just sitting by watching you. And can you perform under that pressure or can't you? And uh, it was something that I valued, and I really enjoyed my process. What was the workout where you left and you said to yourself, yeah, I just busted all their asses? Oh, uh, the Clippers. I thought the Clippers, I had a really good one in L.A. Um, who would I have with me? Maybe Barkley, Santangelo. Oh, I can't remember. I know it was probably two other guards. And I thought I had a really good workout with the Clippers that year. It was really, really good. I remember I left Toronto, and I think all my workouts are pretty good. 
but Toronto was the one workout, and I always heard about Toronto was the toughest. Like we, you did, you went probably the first half an hour, twenty minutes of um, a training without the ball. Like you doing the beat test, you know, a lot of like just testing your ability, your agility, all of that stuff, and then you go into shooting, and then obviously me being five ten, we did a drill where you have to go on a fast break and they want us to dunk the ball every time and you just keep going up and down and I can dunk, but it's a little, takes a little bit more for me to keep dunking at my size. And you got then a guy at six, five, who does much easier. Um, I've been bothered that workout with Jason Hart and that was extremely tough. Uh, <laughs> my goodness. That was one, like when that workout was over, I was like, Holy shit. It puts you through a lot. That's around the age, but 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 nevertheless, it was a great experience, though. You end up as a, a second round pick. So then, what was the, what was the process then between after draft day to you ending up playing in Europe? Take us through the, yeah. the journey. The journey from there. um, it was it was pretty easy. So Atlanta already had their roster kind of full, somewhat. Um, the year before, drafted Jason Terry as a guard. Uh, so they had their pieces already. So for me, it was, it made sense to just go overseas. It did. I ended up getting a really good deal. Um, I made good money the very first year out. So it, it was at the time I couldn't get them, my agent couldn't get them to guarantee me. So I had to make a business decision, go where I'm going to get the guaranteed money. So that's why I left. Although I might've had a good shot if I went to camp that year. So the next year I went, I got on and then I had got released and I went back overseas and, um, you know, I really made my niche. I really made my niche over the water. And what was crazy is that it was probably into my fourth year, third or fourth year, I had got a deal from Milwaukee. Um, and I agreed to it. And I didn't and go to sign my contract in July, or July 15th, the date or whatever it was, um, leading up to it. The year before, I played a really good year in Europe. Um, we lost in the top eight. Um, I won player of the, of the month. It was really good. I remember we beat Mike D'Antonio's team. He hmm. coached Benetton. We knocked them out. Um, so it was a choice between Olympiacos, Panathinaikos, Barcelona. Like, all the top teams were calling me. Like, you know, it was big time. So I would have been receiving the second-year minimum in the league. I was going to sign a three-year deal. That would increase every year. But I would make all that in one year in Europe. So I was like, at the time, you know, it was my you know, my girlfriend. We already had a, a couple kids. I looked at her, I was like, yo, what do you want to do? She was like, listen, let's do whatever you feel comfortable doing. Um, and I sat and I thought about it. I said, well, do I go back to Europe where I'm the man? You know, I have things rolling. The ball's going to be my hand. I'm going to play a lot. Or do I take a contract in the league where I could end up being the ninth, tenth man, maybe not play much, kind of figure it out? At the time, I was too young. I want to play. And for me, I've never been a player that always that thought like, okay, well, I'm in the league. I'm good. No, to me, it was more important to play. Like, I needed to play. So i never forget it. I called my agent. It was probably like three or four days before going to sign. And I told him, like, I'm cool. Like, I want to go to Europe and play. And I remember, I remember we got the phone. He called me back. He said, are you sure this is what you want to do? I said, yeah, I thought it over, man. I'm good. I'm okay with going back to Europe. And the rest is history. So 
that was the decision I made. Um, and to this day, I'm okay with it. Because like I said, you know, me being, what, 25, 26 years old, you know, at that time, I'm, I want to play. I can't sit on anyone's bench. I've always been a guy playing. So that was more the reason why I ended up staying in Europe for so long and not coming back to the States. Did you get your money every year you're in Europe? Because we've all heard crazy I stories. Did. Yeah, but but at the time, my peak, I did. I played on good organizations. So I was lucky. I was in Greece when Greece was good, and Greece was paying the money. Yeah. Um, and I played in such a pill since. So the EuroLeague teams I played for, I was in good shape. But there's tons of horror stories. I'm not saying that sometimes I didn't have to say, okay, I'm not practicing because you're not going to pay. You're not paying me yet. Um, but, again, like anything, through experience, you learn the tricks of the trade. And I learned them, so I was able to get my money. I understood that what organizations were doing was they were getting money from sponsorship. So what it was, was not that they didn't have the money to pay some players. What you do is you take all the money they're giving you, you hold on to it, you collect interest on it, and you pay the players off the interest. That's what a lot of them were doing, especially the teams that had bigger budgets. So in other words, you hold on to the money longer, you gain more interest. So instead of you giving us our money like you're supposed to, you want to hold off on it, you want to be a month or two late. Why? Because now you're going to earn more money on the interest. So oh, you, wow. know, you start learning a little bit more, you learn how to deal with the situation. Right. What What was the the biggest perk, not just cash, the biggest perk you received from any of your stops in Europe? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I could say there's any really big perk. I like think I've heard like I've I, heard like the butlers, the cars. I mean, yeah, that stuff is good. But here's the thing, like you put that in your contract. And so I was in a good situation, good agent, you know, good teams where mm. I made sure I had two, two, two cars so I can have one. And then my wife could have a car as well. Um, oh, here's one that I did. And I don't know if, uh, if guys did it like I did it, but I kind of thought ahead. My kids became school age. Now you're going to school in other countries. Well, we need American speaking schools. So I got them in the contract to pay for my kids' school as well. Wow. So I'm not coming out of pocket for that. And then, oh, here's one decision that I made. And I don't know if a lot of guys do it. You get like four first-class tickets. Well, I said, don't give me first-class. Give me 10 economy tickets instead of four first-class. So I got mm-hmm. that done. So I get 10 tickets as well. I don't care about the first-class. That's fine. I had enough sky miles anyways that I was going to be upgraded anyways. For me, it's fine. But now if I want to fly people back and forth, that's an expense I don't got to pay for because I got in my contract that I got 10 tickets mm-hmm. to use throughout the year. So it was, again, I kind of thought stuff through. And I was like, I thought what would be best for my family, um, things that would make me comfortable. I've always had good living situations. Um, so that was never a problem. I always went and got, got a chance to pick out the place I wanted to live. If I didn't like it, then, you know, let's go somewhere else and try to figure it out. Because I felt like I needed to be comfortable because my kids, my family's going to be with me. So I wanted my family to be comfortable as well. So. Um, it, it worked out well for me. It really did. So I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I would call them perks. The perks you put in your contract, be smart. You know, and I don't think a lot of guys might not be business savvy enough to understand that. But you have to get it in writing. If I get it in writing, you're not going to tell me I can't have it. If you do, that's a problem. That's a breach on your part. Mm-hmm. So I would think about the things I would want and let's put that in writing. Put your incentives for your bonuses and when, when you win certain things, you get extra. And that's just how I always done it. So, you know, again, you have an agent that kind of looks over your stuff, but as a player, the agent works for you. You kind of tell them what to put in and we go back and forth with the team and we figure it out. 
after after your career in Europe, you end up going back to Ohio State, doing player development. When's the first time you heard D'Angelo Russell's name? Oh, I heard about D'Angelo in high school. Um, because Ted Mata, before I got on with Ohio State, I was living in Columbus, um, doing things locally, had camps and stuff. I was always around the organization. I was in the gym playing with the guys, so I knew who they were recruiting. And what I did was I was going on the AAU trail just watching the game because I would like to go watch BABC, you know, my old team. I'd watch all Ohio, a lot of the local kids. So I knew about D'Angelo. He's probably a junior in high school. Yeah, I knew about him pretty much as a junior in high school. Um, I was ecstatic when he decided to come to Ohio State. Because uh, I followed him from that point on. Then he went to Long Verge, you know, exceptional high school player. And got to Ohio State and, and did a great job his, his freshman year. I remember seeing D'Angelo call one of his games, actually, in high school at a tournament in Missouri when Ben Simmons was his teammate. And Ben Simmons was mm-hmm. putting up threes. No problem. Nice. Yeah. Nice and easy. Nice and easy. You remember watching those games? I remember seeing it. Yep. And that's why I don't kind of blows my mind on how things have changed. But it wasn't that he couldn't shoot him because he used to shoot him before. But we've seen that happen before. Markel Folks. Um, uh, say one of my old, one of my best friends, Wayne Turner. You know, Wayne mm-hmm. Turner used to shoot the ball in high school. He has a different looking form. I don't know what happened when he was at Kentucky, but that just all of a sudden just changed. That's true. Do 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 the guys right? now? Yeah, it's it's nuts. Do the guys now in in Memphis that you're an assistant coach, you're around every day. Mm-hmm. Do they know your highlights? Have have you shown? No, have you shown them anything? I don't show them nothing, but these kids YouTube everything. They can see everything. But what's so what's so cool about that is that um, let's use John Miranda for instance. So. They hear stories about people, a lot of these kids grow up watching NCAA basketball, but they were young. These kids were born in 99. Yeah, I went to the Final Four. That's crazy. Some, you know, John was born in 99, John Jones. But here's the cool thing about <laughs> it is that their dads know. See, John's dad played on the same AU team as Ray Allen, and we played against them. So John's dad has known about me. So right when I got here, I was able to connect with him. So And then Jaron's dad was in the league. And so now the kids can get it from their parents. Their parents were involved in basketball. Uh, but then it's cool because I got to show them a little bit because I play a lot with these guys. I can't move like I moved before, but I'm the guy that we do our pick and roll drills and they got to play D. I'm the guy who has the ball in his hand. So they like to guard me a lot. So sometimes I got to, that, that competitive nature comes out and I get to going at them. So then they really got to pick their defense up. So I always tell them like, just imagine 20 years ago, what would happen young fella? You know, but it, it's, it's a good thing. I've got a really good relationship with these guys. But, again, with technology, they're able to go back and they can learn. And I, and I encourage a guy to do that, not just about college, but about pros, because I'm a true believer that, you know, good players, they study the game. They know the history of the game. And it's important to understand the history of the game if you want to be really great at it. What's something about John Morant we don't know? Something about John you don't know. <sighs> I don't know, man, but this kid, I I can say so many great things about this young kid. He is one of the best basketball minds I've seen, and he's only, he just turned 21. The kid is an absolute student of the game. He, we text during the playoffs, and he's watching the game, and I'm, I'm asking him, is he watching this? He sends me a picture. He's doing film studies while watching the games because he's ready for next year. He's itching to get have a chance to get in the playoffs and battle these guys. So just the, 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 
I think what we do see is people understand the raw talent he has, but you understand the chip he plays with because he's overlooked as a high school student, um, went to a smaller college. But this kid is is, is exceptional young man. He's well beyond his years mentally. And I think that gives him a clear advantage because he reads. Remember I told you earlier the nuances and understand the game and let it come to you in mm-hmm. the reading situation? He does that. At his age, 20 years old, rookie in the NBA, he was doing that. So when during timeouts, I'm behind the bench, coach, so he would come and he would talk to me right away. And he would tell me the stuff he sees, like how he's being guarded and what we should run. And he literally sometimes comes to the huddle and he'll tell coach, hey, let's run the play like this and let's do X, Y, and Z. And coach allows it and it works. So that just shows you the level of maturity that this young man has at such a young age. It also says a lot about Taylor Jenkins, not a guy that yeah. so many know about. So mm-hmm. that shows that shows great confidence that he has in himself and confidence that he has in a young kid in John. Definitely, definitely. He's a great basketball mind. He, you know, him being a young coach as well, first year coach, you know, 35 years old, the tail's an exceptional guy, exceptional student of the game. And um, I think he's going to be a very good coach for a very long time in this league. I oftentimes hear about, and I'm sure you do too, about players and their head coaches. And some players mm-hmm. say that, well, we can't, I, I want a guy who's who's been there before, who knows what it's like to have played in, in these situations. But mm-hmm. then you see Frank Vogel, what he's doing with the Lakers, or Nick Nurse, what he's done with, Toronto and Brad Stevens and, and Eric Spolstra. So, so how does a coach who has never played, how do they command a room? Very good question because I know it's a lot. It, it, it comes up a lot. And I think the way they command is they earn a respect from the players because of their work ethic, because they work to get where they had to where they are. Eric Spolstra, he used to rebound me when I was at camp in Miami. I was in Miami the year that D-Wade got drafted. I spent all summer there, worked with those guys. I worked a lot with D-Wade. Exposure was in the gym every day, rebounding, doing little things that you wouldn't think that a two-time NBA head coach has done. He's done. So I think that's how they get the respect of the guys. But also think about the guys you just named. They have future Hall of Famers on their teams to kind of go ahead and play. And I think that's one thing that, 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 that gives those guys an edge is that they've never been in a situation. They don't know what it feels like as a player, which sometimes can count against you. But also, in in these instances, I think sometimes it helps them because now they can maybe sit back and let the players be great. You know what I'm saying? Like, let them go out and do what they know how to do. Because, again, if you've never done it before, you don't know what it feels like. You really don't know what to do. You might have watched thousands of hours of film, but it's nothing like actually being – on the court with them lights on in that pressure situation and you figure it out, that to have enough in you, confidence, um, knowing your, I don't know, knowing your palate, to sit back and say, okay, go ahead. Because I think that's what these guys do. You know, Spolster, I mean, I wouldn't say his job was easy. It's hard to coach the future Hall of Famers. It's hard to have a Dwayne Wade and, and Chris Bosh and LeBron James. That takes a lot. You got to relinquish your pride and let guys go. And I think that's one thing that these coaches do is they also don't carry the pride that maybe a Larry Bird had when Larry Bird was a coach. 
you know what I'm saying? But then you have Steve Kerr who does an excellent job because Steve Kerr just sits back and let his guys operate. But he's the guy who played on the highest level and has many rings. So it comes both ways. But for those guys who didn't play that are doing it on a very high level and doing it very well, work ethic is unbelievable. But also they know how to put their, their pride aside and let their plays be great. We want to close with some quick hitters. So these questions may not be related to one another, but just, just some things we want to hit on before, before we let you go. We appreciate all the time, of course. Um, For me, first one is you played with Chris Heron back in his high school days, obviously an absolute legend there uh, from fall river. How good would Chris Heron have been if, and he's been amazing in his life. So I'm so glad in a way things have, have turned out for him the way they have. But how good is, of a basketball player would he have been uh, if if all the off-the-court stuff was, wasn't an issue? I think Chris has been a great player. He would have. I mean, he showed flashes of it. Um, but still things that – now, I'm not saying Chris would end up being all-star, NBA Hall of Fame. I'm not going to say that. But he would have been a guy definitely that would have spent 12 years in the NBA without blinking his eyes because he was able to do that. He could shoot. He could handle the ball. Intelligent player. You know, he could play D. He could do a lot of things. He was just talented. You know, but more than anything, his biggest talent, the kid compete. A great competitor, feisty, and, and I love Chris, man. One of my favorite teammates I ever played ball with is Chris Heron, man. I love him to death. But like you said, I'm just happy where his life is now and seeing the things that he's doing with his life. 1999 World University Games in Spain. Oh, yeah. You missed you, you missed the last two games with a stomach mm-hmm. illness. How'd you get sick? Mm-hmm. I got sick because we went on a boat in Palma, Mallorca, and we ate all kind of food out there on the boat. We ate fish and all this stuff, and that's how I got sick. So I tried to play the games, but I had to sub right out. I couldn't. I was laying on the side, and my body just wouldn't allow me. Actually, did I get in the game on the championship game? I might have went in and just came back out and laid on the floor. But here's a, here's a catcher. I was sick. Then I got better as we got back. I got an IV right when we got back to New York. But the whole women's team got sick. All the American sports teams all were getting sick. Oh. It was bad. Our volleyball team, more guys on the basketball team ended up getting sick by, before we left. It was just, it was disaster how many of us got sick um, over there. But, yeah, it affected me pretty good. All right, so then on that note, what's the most adventurous meal you had when you played overseas for 11 years? Oh, there's none because I'm not an adventurous person when it comes to my food. So my thing was, even when I go to countries I couldn't understand, like, give me chicken. And somewhere, I know someone's going to have chicken somewhere. That's what I would eat. I was never one to go to places and try all kind of wild stuff. Not even that. I would think the wildest thing I tried was maybe when I go to New Orleans, I ate some alligator. But I'm not, I'm not that guy. I was never that guy. My wife would be that person that she would try things. Me, no. If there's nothing I can find, give me a salad or something. But I'm just not that adventurous guy when it comes to my food. All right, so where is so where's the best Greek salad? Oh, the Greece. Oh my God, feta cheese everywhere. Um, but you know, being in Greece, living there, having those Greek salads are fabulous, and I fell in love with eating Greek salad. But also, there's a place called Brothers in the Salem area, Brothers, and that's where I first got turned on to Greek salads, owned by by Greeks. There's a couple of them, mm. and I used to go there, and I used to get a Greek salad. But I would also get my steak and cheese, the extra cheese. They put the feta cheese in it like a salad. They put it in a pita, and that was my Ooh. meal all the time. I would get that. Sounds good, right? 
That's a Massachusetts steak and cheese. There you go. It's a cheesesteak. That steak and cheese. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You already know. Steak and cheese or roast beef. One of the two. What you going to go to Kelly's and get some roast beef? Oh, yeah. And Revere. Yeah. Yeah. And they're probably hitting Dunkin' Donuts at some point later. Scooty, during your final four run, uh, you beat Eric Barkley, who played with you on that on on that '99 team that you just mm-hmm. you just were talking about. So you guys know each other real well. But Ron Artest also on in that game. Yeah. You go for 22, eight and eight. What are your What are your memories of that game? Mm-hmm. What are your memories of of Ron Artest in specifically in that game? Okay, so it's funny because Ron and I go back because me and Ron played together on a team. We went overseas. Um, we sat on the plane together with roommates. So me and Ron have been close for for many years um and i asked ron i was like yo did you throw was you trying to throw the game was you point shaving because he played horrible i thought we had a good scheme but he had a horrible game that game thank goodness he did um but a lot of trash talking you know went on but i just remember um in that game i remember mike red had a big first half and then i had a big second half and and when we got momentum there was nothing in my mind that said we were gonna lose this game I knew that we were going to win that game. Like, there was – I'm telling you, I was so confident. It made no sense. It sounds stupid how confident I was, but I just knew we were going to win it. And like I said, Mike had the first half, and I took the second half, and the rest is history. Which makes a lot of sense because you and, you and Mike accounted for 52% of your team's mm-hmm. points going into the Final Four. You get to the Final Four – did you see Randy Moss wearing a Scooney Pen jersey at the Final Four? No, I didn't. I didn't see him. I didn't see Randy Moss wearing it. But if he did, that's cool because Randy's my guy. He was on my team when we was in high school at Nike All American Camp. Randy Moss was on my team, and he would say, "Throw the ball!" Like just point his finger up, just throw it up, and he'd go up and get it with his little country accent. But nah, Randy's cool. Always been a great friend. Um, when I had fundraisers and I did things. Uh, Randy, I reached out to him. He signed, he sent me signed jersey, you know, from him and stuff, which was real cool. So I don't know if I, I've never seen a picture. I've never even heard it. Of her. That's the first I've ever heard that. To be honest with you. Yeah, I, I, I read a story from a long time ago that Randy Moss was wearing the Scooney Penn jersey at the Final Four. So what kind, what kind of player was oh, it? Man. We've all seen the highlights of, of Randy Moss with with Jason Williams. What type of player was he? Just a, he's an athletic player. He was. I would say not too skilled. He was a straight line driver and a guy that just jump off of one leg and dunk on you. You know, good athlete. He's not going to be a guy that's going to rally daddy with hand over his jump shot. But that's what I remember of him, running the court, like running the sideline and just throwing it up to him, him just taking off and going to get it. So I love playing with guys like that. It makes my job easy. <laughs> I bet. Um, golf, I know it's a huge deal for you and the Ohio State Ooh. crew. So – so what is the ultimate foursome with Ohio State guys? And take me through the, the trash talk and, and what's going on over those 18. Oh, yeah. So it's crazy because we haven't been able to play as much lately, like together. Um, but for years, we played a lot. You know, when I played with Jim Jackson, it, it, we get a lot of chatter when people look on the tee box and three lefties, myself. I'm right-handed, but I play from the left side. Myself, Mike Red, and Mike Conley. You know, all play from the left side. Um, then I play with Clark Kellogg a lot, who, who chips and putts with one hand only, which is ridiculous, but he's really good at it. Um, there's so many guys now. 
it's crazy because the younger guys are starting to pick it up now. I think the Sellingers are trying to pick it up. Evan Turner, you know, trying to pick it up, uh, which is good because we encourage all the guys to pick it up because it's a way for us to bond. Guys, you can get in the gym and then go golfing or whatever the case may be. But now guys are getting older, so we just find places to go. And that's what we do. A lot of football guys we golf with as well. Uh, Mike Doss, who played at Ohio State, is one of my close friends. We live near each other in Columbus, so we play a lot of golf. Um, Got to play golf with Archie Griffin. Mm. A lot of us do that. So golfing for us at Ohio State became like a really big thing. I always wanted to put together something where, especially on the basketball side, if we did like a golf tournament with the universities, with former players, and and, and the schools that I would target would be UConn because I know that Ray and Rip and a lot of those guys, Mm -hmm. they golf. Um, I know some of the guys on the Michigan State side, they golf. I'm really good with Andre Hudson, so he tells me about the guys that play. Because I played with Andre a couple of times. I'm um, just trying to figure out more of the schools that play with former players. But uh, there's not too many guys that play more than Ohio State guys. I'll tell you that right now. Our list of guys that play golf is long. When, With all your years over in, in Europe and all the connections you made, when was the first time you heard Luka Doncic's name? Um, I, haven't, I didn't hear of Luka until probably – probably three years ago or so. No, maybe four years ago. Yeah, I didn't hear much about him afterwards. Um, I mean, beforehand. I, I didn't really stay up on what was going on in Europe too too much. But I think I heard about him the year before he really blew up is when I heard about him because I was watching some EuroLeague games because I would get the packet and watch some EuroLeague games. And I was familiar with a lot of Slovenian teams and Slovenian players. And then he went to a big team that I used to play against a lot. Um He's exceptional. So, trust me, he's not a person that's not going to hear about him. So, everyone's going to know that boy's name. Mm-hmm. When you're on the plane, who is the one player on the Grizzlies that no one wants to sit next to? Uh, <laughs> I don't know if we have that problem. I don't know if we have that problem. We No, we really don't because we have some. We have a group of guys that play their cards. So, the way it's set up is guys don't have their assigned seat. So, they're set up to where... We know the guys who want to play cards, so they sit in a certain area. Then other guys that want to sleep, they got a certain area. So um, I would say if I, had, if I had to choose, I would say Jonas. Um, that's only because he's big as hell. Right, takes up the most and, space. Yeah. yeah, that's it because he's big as hell. But the seats are big enough to where, you know, it, it, obviously we don't fly in the regular plane. Mm-hmm. The space is huge, so everyone has enough space. But Jonas likes to talk and – Jonas gets to pushing on you a lot and shit like that. So, you know, guys might say Jonas is the guy. My last, my last one, Scooney. Have you ever met another Scooney? I have not. That would blow my mind, to be honest with you. Um, only other Scoonies I've met have come in the form of animals. Um, I can't tell you how many times throughout my life that I've run into people that tell me, that they named their cat or their dog after me. Um, I don't know if that's a compliment, but it, it, it but it happened a lot, especially in Columbus. Um, I've run into, obviously, now think about it, 99, we went. No, those people are 20 years old, 21 years old. I run into all the time where people say all the time, like, you know, because of when we were playing all the time. And you, if, you, if you've been in Columbus or if you've been in Ohio, you understand the, how fanatics they are for the Buckeyes that a lot of people named things after me when we were, when I was in school on that run. So I have random, even when I had camps, 
in Columbus. I have kids that always know me. They they do know me because they're like, I see you on my wall my whole childhood growing up. You know, huh. my parents always had your picture on the wall or your poster or your telephone book where you were on the cover of the telephone book. So your name became a household name. And it's weird. When people hear my name, they know exactly who it is. So I don't think I rent another Scooney. If I do, it's going to be an animal. <laughs> yeah, there's only one. Does, does anything make you feel older than someone saying, my parents had a, oh, tel- yeah. a telephone book with your picture on the front? Man, I a get it all the time. Book. I get aged all the time, man. But you know what? It's cool. I don't mind it. But it, it does happen quite a bit where I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, I'm really this old now where this shit has happened to me all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm an old head now with all these young guys. They love calling me old head and shit, which is cool. And I don't mind it. I tell, I look old. I'm older, but I look younger than you. So how much sense does that make? Right. And you, and you still got the game. Our final question always since the podcast is called Rejecting the Screen is the conversation that a lot of the guys in the 90s used to have in the 80s in the back of the bus of who do you want to take the last shot? Of all the Ooh. teammates you've ever had, high school, AAU, college, pros, who would you choose to reject the screen, go ISO, get a bucket? Besides yourself? Yeah, of course. Okay, I'll say I'm going to take it. Um, all those guys, I'm going with Mike Red because Mike is built for that. All the guys I know, and I don't care – Mike can get a shot off against anybody, one-on-one, ISO. You play him too close, he's going to blow by. You get up off and you back off and he's going to shoot in your face. That's without a hesitation. I'm taking Michael Red. All right, how about to make a putt? Oh, <sighs> to make a putt, Mike Conley. Conley's a really good putter. Okay. Yeah, Conley's a really good putter. I'll go with Mike Conley. Scooney, we really do appreciate it. This is terrific. Best of oh, health to your family. Stay, stay, health, stay healthy, stay safe. And we're looking forward to all good things from you and the Grizzlies next season. All right, thank you. You guys take care. Yeah, Scooney, all the people at, in Andover still frustrated that you knocked them out of the state tournament. So they're going to listen, but they're frustrated. I was to beat my ass when I was a kid, so we got to get even somehow. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks All right, so Scooney. much. Thank you. All right, take care, guys. So I called a game once on CBS Sports Network with Scooney. It was a Division II game. Drury, which is a D2 powerhouse in Springfield, Missouri, against Maryville. And the day of the game, I think that morning, Scooney and I were just shooting around in the gym. I think the game was later, so you'd go back to the hotel, change, whatever. So that morning, or maybe it was the day before, we were shooting around in the gym. And Scooney didn't miss. Like when I, when I say he didn't miss, he actually didn't miss. So this was maybe, hmm, how long ago was this? Maybe eight years ago. So he, a year out of being overseas. And so I always think about that because I think he took, it was maybe like 50 or 60 shots from all over the place. And oftentimes I think back to that moment. When, when the average person says, oh, that guy's a bum, he stinks, this, that. Like, <laughs> you have no idea how good certain guys are. 
and Scooney Penn was a star in college and could have played in the NBA. But as he said, I wanted to play. And then he went on to be one of the best point guards in Europe over 11 years. It tells you how difficult it, it really is just to make the league. And to your point, obviously, the guys that people think about as a 12th man, what have you. But but think about it. Even the guys on those rosters that are currently playing in the NBA, if some other guys like Scooney Penn decided two years into their international career, you know what? I'm going to go play in the league now. I'm going to you know sacrifice and play in the league. Like, he's coming back. Somebody else is losing a roster spot. So there are a lot of guys that, that could be playing in the NBA right now uh, for one reason or another and aren't. And I had heard, you know, I meant dropped it at the end of the podcast, but I had heard the name Scooney Penn for the first time back when he was in his younger years in high school, because I grew up in, in Massachusetts. Well, in the early part of my childhood in Massachusetts and town uh, Vandover and, and Tewksbury. And, and when I was living in that, that region, I was friends with guys that were high school stars in the local scene there. Uh, and so guys, even now that I still talk to Eric Danis, Eric Thompson, Tom Tannen, guys played Andover, Central Catholic. Um, and the, the interesting part of all this was they were all talking about Scooney Penn, like you will not believe this kid. And, and keep in mind, of course, it's we're talking early to mid 90s when it wasn't if a guy was a big name, everyone knew about him. You'd read in Street and Smith about whether this kid was a star or not, but you didn't know how good they they really were. And I'm hearing all about Scooney Penn, and they're talking about all these things he could do. And he goes to BC, and he's outstanding right away. But it was so funny. He then ends up at uh, at Ohio State. And me, you know, at that point, I had moved to Pennsylvania. And he's at Ohio State. And Rip Hamilton, a guy that plays in, in my conference in high school in the Chessmont, they're battling for, you know, um, a spot for the national championship in 99 final four games. So Ohio state and, and UConn, I, I just, I've been blown away. It's one of those things you hear about Scooney Penn, the legend of him from these Massachusetts guys and what he was able to accomplish, as you point out, not just on the college scene, but also internationally becoming a major star there. It's so cool to see him now finally in the NBA and doing so as, as an assistant coach. Yeah. And it's great that, you can go on YouTube and watch a bunch of highlights from his college days and watch a bunch of stuff from his European days. And the guys can like John Morant can go back and see his assistant coach that he goes to. And he looks back to on the bench and has those conversations with, and can have that type of respect for him because he knows that Scooney was killing dudes when, when the big East was the big East when he's going up against Iverson and others and going all the way back to AAU is ended the you know, best team in the country. And they're playing against Vince and Kobe and KG and all of those guys have, would have the greatest of respect for Scooney. And I think what makes him one of the things that makes him and will make him a longtime coach in the league, if that's what he decides to do is the fact that he can uplift guys. He's yes. got that, that motivational gene, that mentor gene that was on display when he got to Ohio state, when he was a transfer and he uplifted the walk-ons and the guys who didn't play to beat the starters in practice all the time. So now you can inject that into and help develop that culture in Memphis that caught so many of us by surprise and around the league. But I don't think it caught any of them by surprise because they know the type of people that they have building that foundation. 100%.
So make sure you check out everything else going on on the Locked On Podcast Network. Locked On NBA is five days a week. Locked On Fantasy Hoops with Josh Floyd, Hollinger and Duncan, and your team every day. All 30 teams every day here on the Locked On Podcast Network. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please just hit the subscribe button, the five stars, leave a review just like Lefty did this week, which was very kind on our Jeff Perlman interview. And that book comes out this week, Three Ring Circus, the Lakers book, Shaq, Kobe, Phil, and the crazy, insane Lakers. So go back and listen to our conversation with Jeff Perlman and and so many of the other Going ISO editions, the long-form interviews that we've done with so many guys in and around the NBA that you'll never know when we recorded them since there really isn't a timestamp on them. And also, we got some great got some great texts. I didn't even tell you. I'll, I'll let you know who they were from. But some nice texts about our podcast on Tuesday. Adam and I do a podcast every Tuesday here, Rejecting the Screen, where it's just the two of us talking hoops and a little bit of life, a lot about the MVP voting and our conversation that was centered around that, that you can also go back and enjoy. We're on Instagram also at rejecting underscore the underscore screen. Adam is on Twitter at Naismith Lives. I'm at Noah Kozlov. C-O-S-L-O-B. Adam, thanks, pal. You are the best.